Welcome to the midweek edition of Legal AF, the top legal podcast providing analysis of the most consequential developments at the intersection of law and politics with your regular team of midweek anchors, Michael Popak and Karen Friedman at Diffalo. We have a special crossover edition, Karen, of Legal AF because we're joined for our first segment by Anthony Davis, journalist, podcast host, and broadcaster. And he's the host of Five Minute News and the Weekend Show on the Midas Media Network. He's unvarnished, he's unbiased, and he's here with us today to talk about our first topic. Our first topic, uh, speaking of first topics, the Biden administration and its State Department has made a decision to seek immunity for Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who's also known as MBS, in a suit brought by the widow of journalist and U.S. citizen Jamal Khashoggi of The Washington Post, who was brutally ambushed, tortured, killed, and dismembered in 2018 in Istanbul at the Saudi consulate. According to the U.S. intelligence community, that was done by order of MBS. So why did the Biden administration weigh in and argue for immunity? And what does it mean internationally to our global standing as a defender of human rights? Anthony Davis will join us for this discussion. Then Karen and I will talk about the revelation just yesterday of a secret trial that was conducted last December, but didn't get disclosed until yesterday, in which a New York State Supreme Court judge, Judge Mershon, found the Trump Organization in criminal contempt even before the Trump Organization trial and conviction on 17 felony counts, including tax evasion, even began. They were already in criminal contempt before that even began. Was its disclosure this week a signal from the New York trial judge to Chief Judge Beryl Howell in the District of Columbia and the Department of Justice about Trump's unclean hands when it comes to documents? I'll give you my view, and we'll hear from Karen on that. Next, we discussed the New York Attorney General Letitia James filing her motion to dismiss Trump's and the Trump uh, revocable trust uh, suit in Florida, now in a Florida federal court in front of probably the least favorite judge that Donald Trump could face, Judge Middlebrooks, Don Middlebrooks, in which Donald Trump is trying to get a federal court in Florida to dismiss and prevent the continued prosecution of the civil fraud case in New York by Letitia James's office. This is now in front of the same judge who just last month dismissed Trump's suit against Clinton, Hillary Clinton, and a whole load of Democrats, and sanctioned Donald Trump and his lawyers as well. But terrible draw for Trump. We'll talk about what it means. And we'll end tonight's podcast with the possibility that the biggest hammer in the Department of Justice's arsenal against the Jan 6 defendants and future ones like Donald Trump, the obstruction of an official preceding uh, felony count with its 20-year sentence may be on life support, based on an appeal and an oral argument that's pending before the D.C. uh, Court of Appeals in Washington. A dozen federal prosecutors and FBI FBI agents watch the oral argument from the gallery and want to know what the result is going to be because it changes the approach of the Department of Justice in their interactions uh, with current uh, Jan 6 defendants. It changes convictions that have already happened based on obstruction counts and will and would change irrevocably future indictments of people using what has been the biggest hammer in the Department of Justice's bag. That's a lot to talk about at midweek, but we're going to do it as we always do. Karen, 
How are you? It's so great to see you in what I've now discovered uh, is a real actual library. It is. I always I thought it was a backdrop that you used. And then you you swiveled your camera around, which we'll now do for those that watch us on YouTube and showed me the, how wrong I was. Um, this is actually a real office behind me. But for some reason, I thought the angle showed that, that was some sort of amazing backdrop. But no, I'm wrong. So but, but I'm glad you're here. How was your week? How was your week of being a a lawyer, a defense lawyer and, and all that great stuff? It's been good. It's been a really good week getting ready for the holidays, trying to figure out what gifts to give and all, all those various things. But it's been good. How about you? Oh, I, it's great. And I'm, I'm doing the same thing as you are. I'm trying to check off my shopping list with Hanukkah and Christmas on top of each other this year. And maybe some people during today's show will get some ins, inspiration by some of our sponsors. And you know, maybe I, use I some actually, of our... One of our sponsors that we're going to get to later is yeah. one of the gifts that I've given and will be giving so several people because it's a great sponsor. But we'll so save great. that. And I, and, and I know it's you're going to do that ad... You're going to do that ad read. And I love that new sponsor. We'll talk about them when we get to it. But let's get to something really less lighthearted and much more serious, which is the United States human rights policies and uh, a recent decision by the Biden administration and its State Department to intervene to argue that the uh, crown prince of um, uh, the crown prince of, uh, of Saudi Arabia um is uh, not responsible or can't be sued in a federal courthouse by the widow of Jamal Khashoggi for his dismembering death and all of that. Uh, for that, I'd like to bring in Anthony Davis, our colleague on the Midas Media Network, broadcaster extraordinaire, um, host of the Five Minute News and the Weekend Show, just brings an amazing, even though he lives in America now, an international perspective based on his his uh, longtime work with the BBC and others. So, Anthony, we're pleased to have you back on the show. And I think this is a perfect segment for, for us to talk about. Let me frame it over two minutes, and then I want to get both Karen and yours view about it. So here's the undisputed facts. We have a crown prince of Saudi Arabia who really runs that regime um, in uh, Mohammed bin Salman, known as MBS. Um, and the U.S. intelligence community has no doubt and delivered that report to Joe Biden really upon his move into the White House that MBS had given the the, uh, the green light, the go order, to send an execution team of 15 people, including nine of them that were on his personal security detail, known as the rapid response team. He, he first devised an elaborate trick and a plot to get um, Jamal Khashoggi, who had written unfavorable press and articles about Saudi Arabia when he when he was at the Washington Post. And and this is this just gets more heartbreaking the more I tell the story. Uh, Jamal was about to get married, eventually married, um, who is now the plaintiff in the case against Saudi Arabia. Um, a woman and uh, needed a certain paperwork from Saudi Arabia, which he had left behind living as an expatriate in the United States years ago. Uh, when MBS, according to the intelligence community, learned that he needed this paper, the, the, the decision, the plan was hatched to trick him into getting back onto Saudi soil, in this case, the consulate sitting in Istanbul. And, and when he got there, uh, of course, ambush him, not give him the paper he was looking for, instead, torture, kill, and dismember him, literally, 
uh, while he was there, and his, his fiance, then wife, never got to see him ever again. And so that happened in 2018. And since then, um, there's been this litigation that was started by um, his fiance, or now wife, actually, in, in uh, federal court in the District of Columbia. And there is a bat. There was a battle, or has been a battle, doctrinally, from uh, a immunity standpoint, as to whether the crown prince was head of state or something akin to it, because if he wasn't head of state or something to the equivalency, then he would not have immunity. But if he was head of state, he would have immunity, and that goes back to a long line of State Department um, uh, policies and uh, positions that the, that, uh, that the United States has taken almost in an unbroken chain of precedent about no matter how heinous the crimes, if the person that did it is, is a head of state, he's not going to be able to be sued in the United States for that. And so for a long time, and the timing of this is important, for a long time, it was suspect whether the crown prince being just the crown prince, not head of state, would be able to successfully argue that he had immunity. And given the strategic geopolitical importance, apparently, of Saudi Arabia to America f through every administration, not only because of oil and its OPEC role, but also because of um, its geopolitical situations and its location in the military world and as a buffer against other other regimes, uh, especially as it relates, for instance, with Israel, uh, let's be let's be honest. The U.S. government has made a devil's bargain a long time ago with Saudi Arabia, and Biden appears to have been in no position to uh, not honor that bargain. But the State Department made a decision to wait as long as they could to weigh in until the Saudi family, led by MBS's father made a decision at the very last minute, literally the day before the federal judge ordered that the State Department file its position on immunity. The day before, uh, King Salman, the father of MBS, stripped off one of his own titles, that of prime minister, and gave it to his son, thus cloaking him in immunity because the State Department already made clear that prime minister is a head of state and would enjoy immunity. It's fishy. It happened apparently with the United States's, um, I don't know about endorsement, but at least with their sanctioning of it. And we need to talk about it because we talk about hard things on legal AF. Let's bring in first um, Anthony. Anthony, what did you think about all this? And, and what's, your, what's your perspective about the Biden administration and the timing of waiting for the crown prince to be given a better title? I think it's less about uh, the Biden administration and it's more about the United States of America, uh, because this probably would have happened with whichever administration would be in. Um, and as you know, Trump did a whole bunch of uh, arms deals with Saudi, uh, including one for around 350 uh, billion, just, you know, halfway through his, his presidency. I mean, it's 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 not just fishy this decision to kind of take the king's role because of course the king automatically becomes the prime minister in in Saudi Arabia that's kind of how it works so to strip the king of of his own title and to give it to uh his son in this way and suddenly make him prime minister of course the only reason they did it was because of this so so that he wouldn't be accountable 
even though the king had already taken responsibility for the, you know, they said we take responsibility for this crime, but then they don't expect to, for anything else to come from that. And so this is really more about the relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia or Saudi Arabia and the, re- and the rest of the world. I don't think it's specific to Biden. The, the issue with Biden is that he made a promise that he wouldn't sell any more arms to Saudi Arabia. He called them a pariah. He, you know, he had all this rhetoric leading up to the election. He did stick with it. And now, obviously, as time passes and there's deals to be done and money to be made, it's yet again the United States putting the dollar above human rights and above a moral compass. Yeah, I think you I think you put it perfect there. Let's bring in the former prosecutor, Karen Friedman Ignifolo, for her for her views of, you know, Biden's ultimately making that hard decision, but making a decision um, to allow this to happen. I don't think anybody should think this was like Sleepy Joe asleep at the wheel and he got outfoxed outfoxed by Saudi Arabia. I don't know how involved we were in the decision making, but that the State Department was waiting an awful long time until the very last moment to give the Saudis time to give the title that was necessary to MBS. What do you think, Karen, from a prosecutor standpoint as well? Yeah, so there's all kinds of immunities, right, that that we afford people in uh, in the United States and elsewhere. One of them from the criminal side is, for example, diplomatic immunity. And that has to do with diplomats, foreign diplomats who come to this country and sometimes commit crimes. They cannot be prosecuted here without the consent of their government and most of the time they just whisk them away and you know take them back and say we'll deal with it in our country and the reason we engage in these types of agreements with countries is because when we have our diplomats that go on foreign soil we want them to be afforded the same courtesy frankly because as we all know there are strange you know there are laws all over the world that are very different than ours and if you find yourself you know like like Brittany Griner who was in Russia who was arrested for being gay and having residue in her vape of marijuana you know that those things aren't illegal here and that is apparently illegal there and so she was arrested Protectually, obviously, but she was arrested. If she had been a, a diplomat, for example, she would not have, she would have had immunity and would not have been prosecuted. And what happens is she gets arrested, and then we have to do things like do that deal with the real devil, you know, with um, Victor Boot to get her out. And, um, and you know it's very difficult, and so that's one of the reasons we we do this. With you know this is now this is sovereign immunity. Um, you know th- one of the reasons we recognize this this applies in the civil context here. This was a civil suit. This was not criminal, but it's the same kind of thing. It's you know how how you will have uh, jurisdiction over a governmental entity, whether it's your own or whether it's. Um, whether it's uh, another country, but it's it's very much because we also want that same that same um, recognition in the rest of the world. So that's why we do things like this, and we, and we engage in these types of very difficult decision making, so that our people can be protected as well in places that might not have the kind of due process or um, or 
court systems or laws that we have. And so, you know, it, it was a very difficult decision uh, that I think had to be made, but had to be made. There's no, that if you're, there's absolutely no other way around it. You know, sovereign immunity comes actually um, stems from from our days, you know, when we were affiliated with uh, with England and the King of England. And, you know, you just under the there's it, it comes from a tradition of the government, you know, doesn't can't can't do any wrong. And so therefore cannot be sued without its consent. And so that is the rule that is the law. But the um, but, you know, there is, because obviously in our country, uh, we recognized that governments can do wrong. So we, we passed the Federal uh, Tort Claims Act that spells out when you can sue the government. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very, the law is very clear. And I think Biden didn't have a choice and I think had to do it this way. But Frankly, you know, everyone knows it was a farce that MBS was made uh, prime minister just to avoid this. But I think more than anything, they wanted to avoid a, a diplomatic um, disaster if, if you know, he was allowed to be sued in this country. And the, the frankly, the just disaster that would come with discovery and all, you know, this was, a, this was just a heinous crime. And you know, the more you look at it, the less it's palatable to have this diplomatic relationship with Saudi Arabia. So I think for everyone's sake, they just want this to not be front and center so that we can go on with with life. Yeah, I thought that that's a good overview. They look, the politics aligns people and administrations in strange ways. Um, when the Saudi government was the subject of um, new legislation, after 9/11, in the form of the um, uh, the form of JASTA, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, Hillary Clinton at the time was a big proponent of it while she was still in the Senate. But when it reached by uh, Obama's desk, uh, and this would have allowed people like the 9/11 families at that moment to sue directly the Saudi government for their involvement in 9/11, Obama vetoed it, and it took a full Congress to override the veto. Um, and so, you know, people, if you just take one thing out of context, you could say, oh, well, Obama was against the 9-11 families. But there are these more complicated geopolitical issues, especially around Saudi Arabia, um, that come into play. And unfortunately, I think what's left for people like uh, Khashoggi's wife is going to have to be an act of Congress that somehow overrides and allows for this particular immunity to be removed and to allow her to have a continued suit. Um, Anthony, what do, you, what do you think about, you know, cases like the 9-11 families and their ability to go against the Saudi family and, and whether there would be a, a political will to have Congress, some Congress, um, allow such a case to go forward, in, you know, as an exception to the general immunity standards? I think... The U.S. would just love all of this to go away, wouldn't it? Because, you know, <laughs> ultimately, this is not something that the prosecutors want to deal with. It's not something that politicians want to deal with. It's the kind of unfortunate nature of geopolitics where you need to do business with countries that are, um, you know, mur murderers. I mean, the, the detail of this particular murder with Jamal Khashoggi if you read into it, you know, the way his body was dissolved in acid and all this stuff. I mean, it's horrific. 
I can't help but think, just in back to your question, I can't help but think that if he was like a white American citizen, then the reaction might have been slightly different. And then, and then obviously with 9-11, part of the problem there was that, you know, initially there was this huge political diversion as to who was the perpetrator of this crime. And, you know, it was pointed to Saddam Hussein. It was pointed to Afghanistan eventually. And then, of course, they find the perpetrator in Pakistan. But it had, you know, 17 of the 19 bombers were Saudi nationals. And so, again, it's another situation for America to have to deal with. It's like, well... You know, I guess just business, you know, it's just business all the time. It just comes down to business. And this is what drives me mad. There is nothing to stop Biden from saying, OK, no more arms deals. So you have to ask the question, who is putting pressure on Biden to continue selling arms to Saudi Arabia and supporting the war in Yemen? Who Who is putting pressure on the U.S. Um, attorneys to not to give the 9-11 victims the justice that they deserve. I mean, there is clearly, um, you know, in England, we refer to it as the establishment. You know, you, if you've seen the Netflix documentary with uh, Harry and Meghan, you'll learn about the, the forces, the dark forces that are behind a lot of these decisions. As an outsider, I'm kind of asking you guys as American citizens, you know, who who are those kind of unspoken dark forces, not the deep state, I'm not going into conspiracy territory, but clearly there are decisions made at a very high level that are recommended to the President of the United States and to the, you know, to federal prosecutors. Who, who's making these decisions? Who's advising these decisions to kind of just skirt Saudi Arabia at every opportunity? Yeah, I think I think you put you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that, that this is not just Biden. This is just a long, unbroken chain of State Department and diplomacy decisions and military decisions where we're going to just bet on Saudi Arabia. I mean, there's a reason why it's not just those photos of, you know, George W. Bush hold, literally holding hands with King Solomon. You know, Biden does it too. Trump did it. I mean, they they all do it because well, they fist you know, bumped. You, I seem to remember. Well, yeah, they were right because COVID was happening. But they they <laughs> if you if you were able to lift Saudi Arabia out of its geopolitical location and put it somewhere else that was less vital to America interest, or you sucked all the oil out from under Saudi Arabia, or you didn't have it as part of the Middle East, I assure you that the decision making would be different. If this was a a sandy patch in Africa that had no role whatsoever and no spillover effect on policy making, they would not be kowtowing um, to and looking the other way on Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is so worried about its reputation that it literally formed a multi-billion dollar sport league to compete with the PGA in, in live golf. And it's overpaying American, primarily American golfers, hundreds of millions of dollars to to whitewash their bloody hands. And the American but Saudi golfers, Arabia has got so yeah. much money. I mean, this is part of the problem, isn't it? They have an unlimited right. supply of funds and the U.S. does not in the same way. Certainly where I'm from in the U.K., you know, arms is the second biggest export from the UK and Saudi is one of the biggest customers to the UK. BAE Systems is one of the biggest arms companies there. 
And, and so we have the same conversation in England all the time about this. And it just boils down to the fact, certainly in England, we don't have much GDP. I mean, we don't really make anything anymore. You know, we just have financial services and arms Broadcasters deal, and deals. actors. Broadcasters, Broadcasters and actors. Nice. Exactly. <laughs> so so I can see why the UK is a small country with, with very few assets relies on Saudi Arabia in terms of sales. But I don't understand it with the United States, where the, it has massive GDP. It has, it has a huge opportunity to kind of, you know, build in America, hire in America, make in America. And yet it's still relying on these yeah. kind of these deals to sell uh, tanks and missile systems. Yeah. I just don't I don't get think it. it's that, but I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily GDP driven. If they weren't sitting on top of oil wells and in control in part of OPEC and OPEC plus yeah. and they, they weren't so important to to our democratic ideals in the Middle East. That's what I think it is. And our strategic relationship with Israel which is important for anybody that doesn't think it's important, just go to Israel and, and you'll understand almost instantly the importance of Israel to our American foreign policy and democracy having any role at all in the fabric of the Middle East. I think it's that. The extra, sh the extra I almost said shekel, the extra dollar that the America makes from selling arms, to, they could do without that. They can make it up somewhere else. But I don't think you can turn your back. If, if, if that is your foreign policy, which it it has been for you know sixty or seventy years. So you, then you have to you have to hold your nose, which is what it appears every administration does. And, and do World War Three might have something to do with it as well. Don't yeah, you think? And averting I mean, World War Three, right? Would be, it, it, would be there's nice. Iran who is right there, and Iran is of course the enemy of Saudi. Yeah. And Iran, as we know, we're kind of always on the brink of war with Iran, or some people are kind of goading it to happen. I know Trump yeah. was probably looking to start a war in Iran. But that, that is the other problem, isn't it? It's, it's the geography of that area. That's and, right. who, you know, who's on the side of, of the Sunnis and who's on the side of the Shiites. And so you end up in a situation and, and America has to pick a side. Yeah. As unsavory as picking that side is. Anthony, every time I have you on the show with Karen, I'm always, I'm always saying to myself, we got to bring it back like once a month at least. We made that promise last time and then we, then we didn't do it. And we would talk yeah. to you at, at length on every, every, uh, every segment today if we could. But um, I think, uh, Karen, we'd like to come on your show. I know I'll come back on your show. Uh, Five Minute News, the weekend show with Anthony Davis. Always a pleasure to have you on with us, Anthony, and, and happy holidays to you and your family. Same to you. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. And um, this is, we can't segue out of that, <laughs> out of that segment, but I'm going to try, Karen. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality. Did you know that, Karen? If you wake up too hot, or I didn't either, although I get hot or cold during the night, and I always wonder why and what I can do about it, I highly recommend that you check out Miracle Brands bed sheets. It's inspired by silver-infused fabrics made by NASA. Miracle Brand makes temperature-regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Boy, this would solve a lot of problems for me. I've always got that one leg sneaking out because I get too hot during the night. Do you know that that traditional bed sheets can also harbor more bacteria ugh, than a toilet seat? Yuck. Disgusting. It can lead to I know that. Let's let's read that again. 
Traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat. It can lead to acne and allergies and stuffy noses. It's just, there's no other word for it, Karen. It's just gross. Miracle Brand, however, offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. It uses that silver-infused fabric that I mentioned that was developed for NASA. They're thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night, whatever that perfect temperature is for you, so you can get a better sleep every night. And they're self-cleaning. These sheets are infused with natural silver that prevent 99.9% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. No more gross gross odors. Couldn't get that out. Gross odors. There we go. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands. They are, here we go, the perfect gift for your spouse, friends, or family. We're right at the holiday time when you're trying to make a list of what you can buy people. Who doesn't want to sleep and uh, who doesn't want better sleep and luxurious feeling bed sheets? And since these come with three free towels, you get two gifts in one just in time for the holidays. It's better for your skin. Stop sleeping in bacteria, Karen. How many times do I have to tell you that? Clean, so sheets mean, <laughs> clean sheets mean less bacteria to clog your, your pores and fewer breakouts and other skin problems. Go to trymiracle.com slash legal AF. That's T-R-Y-M-I-R-A-C-L-E dot com slash, what else? Legal AF to try it today or gift it to someone special this holiday season. And we got a special deal for our listeners and followers and watchers save over 40% and be sure to use our promo code legal A-F-L-E-G-A-L-A-F at checkout to save even more and get those three free towels. And Miracle is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you will get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Brand. Go to try try Miracle dot com slash legal af and use the code legal af to claim your three piece towel set for free and save over 40 percent off again that's try miracle.com slash legal af to treat yourself a friend or a loved one this holiday season thank you miracle brand for sponsoring this episode we're glad to have you on board as one of our many sponsors karen um it's a miracle that we're even getting through these segments <laughs> as rapidly as we are. And here's my favorite one, one of my favorite ones for tonight. And this has to do with your, your old office, the Manhattan DA. And we just learned yesterday that the Trump organization was the subject of a mini trial in December of last year, secret. No one knew about it until it was revealed by the court yesterday. We'll talk about why that happened, in which the judge, and in a 28-page order, found the Trump organization in criminal contempt beyond a reasonable doubt for their willful flouting of orders and subpoenas that had been issued to the Trump organization. The judge had had enough after reciting all of the facts of all of the shenanigans there with the Trump organization. The Trump threw the, uh, the, the judge threw the book at them and found them in cr- uh, criminal contempt. The only reason we didn't find out about it in advance is because the judge didn't want 
a future jury and the jury to learn that the Trump organization had already been found in criminal contempt, had been convicted of something before the start of their tax fraud case because, and I think rightly so, they didn't want the jury to be um, biased against the Trump organization. The timing of it is interesting, but first I want to get, uh, Karen, your view. You got Solomon Shinerock, a former colleague of yours, who apparently handled the trial successfully. Talk, talk. Let's talk about when a judge, when a prosecutor asks for criminal contempt and when a judge issues it, what, it, what is it and why does a court use it? And what does it mean that the Trump organization got found in criminal contempt before their main trial even started? Yeah, so it's not widely used criminal contempt, frankly. I, I've, I only remember it being done one or two other times recently. And it, it's something that is done when somebody willfully disregards court orders. And so what was happening at the time is uh, Solomon Scheinrock, who was uh, an assistant district attorney in Manhattan investigating the Trump organization, uh, he was, what they were doing during this, is, during the investigation, is issuing multiple grand jury subpoenas. And if everybody recalls, the grand jury is a secret proceeding. And so grand jury subpoenas are also secret, and anything that comes is secret. And so what what, what was happening was the paperwork, uh, it was they were subpoena ducis tecum, which is a Latin phrase for documents, subpoenas for documents. And so as opposed to a subpoena for a person to show up. So they were producing these documents and they were producing, frankly, thousands of documents that were going, that um, the prosecutors were going through. And however, they could tell that there were certain documents that were not being provided. And what um, ADA Shinerock would do is would ask again and give them more time and ask them again and give them more time. And then after a while, when he wasn't getting a response, he brings them to court. And he went in front of Judge Mershon, who then ordered the Trump organization to turn to pr to produce those missing documents. And once again, they didn't produce them. So he ordered them again and he ordered them again. I mean, there were so many opportunities they were given the Trump organization to produce these documents. Uh, I believe there was um, four grand jury subpoenas and three court orders. And they specified what the documents were that they wanted. And the Trump organization just once again, you know, they squirrel away documents. They don't give them over. They don't comply with subpoenas. And so you have nothing else to do but charge them with contempt. And it's a it's a crime, uh, criminal contempt, and you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to show that what you did was willful and knowing. It was, you know, you willfully disobeyed the grand jury subpoenas, not that it was an accident, you know. So that's what you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. And because the grand jury was secret at the time of this trial, they st and the investigation continued and they didn't want the investigation to be spoiled. The trial happened and it was sealed, which is very rare for a criminal case. Criminal cases are, are, are um, and criminal trials are, um, are public by virtue of the, the United States Constitution. And so, you know, the fact that there was a trial going on here, it's and, and nobody knew about it and it wasn't secret, it was, it was because of the grand jury secrecy laws. And, but what happened was uh, the grand jury eventually um, 
was disbanded or, you know, no, was no longer there. And at that point they could have unsealed the finding of this trial. But as, as you pointed out, Judge Marchand, because of the publicity in the surrounding this case, uh, there's no way that prospective jurors wouldn't have heard about that and that could taint them and be considered overly prejudicial because they would see how they are such obstructionists and don't and 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 basically have a, a criminal conviction if you will so um so that's what it means and now he but it but now that the trial is over and before sentencing judge Mershon uh I think that was the reason he did it now, because I could bet you anything he's going to take this into consideration when he sentences them and, you know, and use this as a reason to sentence him to the max, which is not very much, but at least he can do that now. Uh, I think the only um, fine for this particular criminal contempt is $4,000. So it's not like, you know, it's not, there's no, there's no teeth to any of these, uh, any of these laws. So why wouldn't Trump continue and, and the Trump organization and the Trump family, why wouldn't they continue doing what they do, which is they have complete contempt for any law, for any order, for any judge. They do what they want and then they fight it. They bring these frivolous suits, they make frivolous arguments, and they just don't do any... For them, it's like, so who cares that I'm held in criminal contempt? All I have to do is pay $4,000. You know, what they end up doing is they end up delaying things and they end up just using the court system for their own benefit. And I just think at a certain point, it's outrageous to see how they just do not follow the law. And the fact that we have somebody who's running for president and who was president, who just flagrantly does not follow the law is just, I, I can't wrap my head around it. I don't understand. There's just no, there's no, um, there's just no respect for the rule of law. But, and this is just yet another example to just the willful disobeying of court orders to turn over documents in a criminal investigation. And that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's my view. The fine is ridiculously low. I don't even know why Mershon only issued $1,000 for each violation. The, the um, your old office asked for $60,000 a day. And he certainly was empowered to do more. But, you know, just a couple of uh, points of clarification, not to your analysis, but just for our listeners and followers. The reason the Trump organization was being subpoenaed and not it wasn't being done through some other way is because technically the entity that was convicted, the two entities that were convicted of the 17 counts of tax fraud and business record fraud was not the Trump organization. It was the Trump, um, the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll uh, Inc. And so the Trump organization, which was their parent company, but they but but through which these two companies they did all their business that's why they were being subpoenaed as opposed to having documents produced some other some other way in the process i think this was a yes it was important to get this out in the public record as judge Marchand said when he finally after a year unsealed a partially redacted version of the 28 page order but i think this is also as you said this is Trump just thumbing his nose time and time again. But if Mershant hadn't released it now, the Department of Justice would have been in the dark just as much as the public was. It's not like the Department of Justice has a secret, uh, you know, line into all court systems and all sealed documents and knows everything that's going on in an omnipotent fashion, an omniscient fashion all over the country. 
It was news to the Department of Justice that the Trump Organization actually got to the level of so pissing off and flouting the orders of a sitting judge that a criminal contempt trial was held. This will help, and, and conviction was obtained. This will help the Department of Justice and ultimately Chief Judge Beryl Howell, who just last week took a lot of flack for denying the Federal Department of Justice's motion for contempt on very similar, eerily similar issues. This is the pattern that we see with Donald Trump. It's he doesn't appoint on purpose a records custodian who, who becomes responsible under oath for certifying the search for documents that was done, that it is complete under penalty of perjury. None of the lawyers want to now step into that and vouch for their client because they know their client's not trustworthy and their own law license can be jeopardized. You know, see four other uh, lawyers who have or are about to lose their law licenses, including Rudy Giuliani, just up the street in Washington, D.C. So the lawyers don't want to do it. Nobody wants to volunteer to be a records custodian for Donald Trump. There's no more dangerous spot to be in than to be his records custodian. Donald Trump doesn't want to do it because of all the criminal implications of signing something. So he doesn't. So he didn't do it in New York. The The, the records custodian that he did appoint was basically useless and, and had misled the court, a fraud on the court in his own testimony um, in that court. Uh, he, you know, the, the, uh, your old office, Solomon Scheinrock asked him, have you been a records custodian before? Oh yes. I've responded to dozens or hundreds of subpoenas that have come into the Trump organization over the years. You know, we have it down to a science. We have a way to do this. Have you ever been found, sir? Uh, has it ever been found that your uh, conduct in being a records custodian fell short of the requirements and, and you were punished or penalized? No, never. Well, the reality is he had been and the Trump organization had also been in trouble before in responding to other subpoenas and other cases. So you have the same thing going on in Judge Beryl Howell's courtroom on the grand jury subpoenas. Nobody wants to be a, a records custodian. Nobody wants to vouch for Donald Trump and an adequate search having been done of all of the places under his dominion and control looking for documents. And so now the Department of Justice can wave around Judge Mershon's ruling and say, Judge Howell, you should know, if you haven't seen it already, that the Trump organization, led by Donald Trump, was convicted of contempt. This is now on the books for every war. Criminal contempt related to their document production conduct. Isn't that the same thing that's going here? And that'll ring a bell for this judge and future judges, whether it's the Georgia judges related to Fawny Willis's prosecution or anybody else. It is now stamped indelibly, in, indelibly like a scarlet letter on the Trump organization that they have been found in criminal contempt related to documents in a very important case that led to, which led to two major subsidiaries being convicted of 17 counts of fraud. Um, so, so it sounds like you were as surprised as, as everybody else was that this got released a year after it happened, right? Yeah, I had no idea. I mean, I was completely yeah. surprised by it. But I agree with you that this is very much to other judges who are also being the referee over whether or not documents have been produced and to show the willfulness of the fact that they just thumb their nose in the face of of the rule of law. So I agree with you. I think this is as much for other judges. You know, look, frankly, it's I think it's relevant for the Mar-a-Lago document uh, case mm -hmm. as well. You know, it's it's very much 
his mo and his people's mo they of, of what they do so yeah I, I that's bar- that. and that's barrel hell yeah listen ju- judges don't sleep in hyperbaric chambers or under a rock they read the papers they see the media i know mershon knew that barrel howell just denied a motion for contempt and he probably rang a bell in his head and said hmm i'm sitting on a criminally convicted trump organization on some of these very very issues trial is over Maybe it's time for the public, the public's knowledge and justice, which is what the judge said in, as his rationale for releasing it now. And I agree with you. It's both sentencing and a clarion call to other judges um, and now an indelible stamp on the Trump organization that, that can't be trusted. And it's now been so proven in a court of law on document issues. Um, you know, it comes it, there comes a time in the show when sometimes, Karen, I am just inclined to, to treat you like royalty. I mean, I try to treat you like royalty as a co-anchor anyway, like Lady Karen, you know, something like that. Wouldn't that be great if you could be Lady Karen? You know, that would be absolutely amazing. I would love, it's it's my dream actually. <laughs> to have to, that title, right? To have, a, to have you know, uh, to be royalty. So, you know, we have a really interesting product from one of our sponsors. It's called Highland Titles. Uh, Scotland is unusual in that it has legally defined in the Land Registration Act of 1979 a souvenir plot of land. These plots of land are so small that their value is solely commemorative or sentimental. They're a novelty and you can buy them as a gift because these plots cannot be registered with Scottish land registry. There's no conveying of of the land. There's no solicitors or land taxes involved. And even though these plots cannot be registered in a conventional way, customers can obtain a personal right of ownership. And it's a valid form of ownership, which can be passed on to future generations. So what can you do with your one square foot of Scottish land? Highland what can you do with your what? I was just asking myself, Karen, what can Highland you do titles, with your one? It, it allows you. <laughs> It allows you to style yourself as a lord or lady or laird of your estate. And each luxury gift pack comes with a personalized certificate which displays your new style and identifies your unique plot number. You can also look on Google Maps and see your plot of land. So it's not too late for Christmas because you can actually download your personalized certificate after checking out and use the discount code LEGALAF to receive 25% off at www.highland.com titles.com. I actually, after seeing this was, so I've seen this before and I've, I've, um, thought it was really interesting. And so I actually, one of, one of my very close friends today is his 11th birthday. And I, right before we started taping, I went on there and I did this for him and I'm going to present him. He's, he's Laird Alexander, and I'm going to present this to him. This is so great. He's going to to have that. I think it's this is a fantastic idea. I absolutely love it. I I uh, with Megan and Harry so quickly giving up their titles. I think it's great that you can through this this Highland Titles Company sponsor. You can get a title. You can you can buy a title and get a three point three times uh, three size plot of land. Great for the holidays, all the holidays, Hanukkah, Christmas, or whatever you celebrate, or just just to give a fun novelty gift to a friend. We're so. Am I going to have to start so, calling you Lord Popak? Uh, you mean again? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Although I do like Lord Pope. I do like the sound of it, and I do like. I think this is a very fun sponsor for us to have, and 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 really and welcome them to the show. Um, let's turn to the other reason that people love our show is our analysis of legal and 
political issues. Let's talk about uh, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, and doing battle, not in New York, not where she should be doing battle, where that has jurisdiction over her and her case against Donald Trump and all of the little Trumpettes, all the little children of Donald Trump, in the civil fraud case brought under her very broad um, powers, unique powers as the Attorney General of New York to go after people and individuals um, who are continuing to commit fraud in the state. And, and the, our statutes here, specifically 63-12, give her extraordinarily broad and muscular powers against a company that's been accused of fraud, even in the civil context. Well, Donald Trump doesn't like the way that case is going and having already lost in a New York state jury trial, criminal with a much higher burden of proof on, on, his, on his main company, his only company, on 17 counts of tax fraud. He's now staring down the barrel of a civil fraud case that actually probably has more ability to disrupt his finances and his life and the operation of his business in New York than even the criminal trial does. Because the criminal trial with a jury, yes, he's convicted, and that will now stay on the Trump organization's record and will make it difficult for them to get conventional lending, to get insurance, to get licenses. But over on the civil side, uh, this might sound counterintuitive, but we've talked about it in past podcasts. On the civil side, the judge and the New York attorney general have tremendous power. If, if a jury finds that they have committed civil fraud, Trump and his children, to take away their company, to give it the death penalty, um, make sure it doesn't do business in New York any longer. And uh, Letitia's seeking, Letitia James is seeking at least a $250 million worth of disgorgement back to the state of New York for what she believes is ill-gotten gains or profits. Well, Trump doesn't like all of that. And where is his favorite jurisdiction? Um, his backyard in Florida. And he files cases all over the state. He, he tries to do it in in the northern part of the state, hoping to get a great judge for him like Eileen Cannon, and he was successful. He, he just filed a case against the Nobel Peace Prize Committee because they gave out a peace prize based, in his view, on the Russia interference um, uh, reporting. So he sued them in the from a county nobody's ever heard of in the middle of the state called Okeechobee County, probably because he's got another buddy there or a Trumper is sitting on the bench there. And then he ran down to his, his other favorite place, the courthouse in West Palm Beach, uh, first in the state court, because he's already scared of of Judge Donald Middlebrooks. D judge Donald Middlebrooks, which is the senior judge in the West Palm Beach Division of the Southern District of Florida. And I, as people know, I've been in front of him uh, over the years in various cases and trials. He's a no-nonsense judge. He's apolitical. Um, but you better come prepared in this courtroom with the law and the facts on your side or you're going to be tossed out. Um, the case that he originally filed against Hillary Clinton and all of the Democrats and Democratic National Committee and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and all these other people with, uh, which, with just a vendetta lawsuit, um, a performative lawsuit, as Judge Middlebrooks called it, just political in nature, having nothing to do with the law or the facts. That was tossed a month and a half ago by Don Middlebrooks, dismissed with prejudice and a finding of sanctionable conduct by Donald Trump and his lawyers, and he's in the process of awarding up to a million dollars in in fees to the other side who had to defend 
this BS case. That's the Don Middlebrooks, Judge Middlebrooks we're talking about. Donald Trump decided that he was going to try to drag Letitia James and New York Attorney General's office all the way down to Florida and a Florida courthouse and try to argue there that that she doesn't have jurisdiction over his major asset, which is his trust, which he formed where apparently all of his financial assets are sitting and trying to get a Florida judge to interfere with the New York judge and the New York powers and put a stop to the civil fraud case in a New York courthouse. Even the, the first listener, the person who's only listened to the show for the first time today, is probably saying, how does a Florida court have jurisdiction over a New York court's proceedings? The answer to that is it doesn't. But Donald Trump trying to avoid Don Middlebrooks for the second time filed it in state court at the courthouse across the street from the federal court, hoping to God that he would get a more favorable audience. But I guess what he didn't bank on was that Letitia James would immediately, based on the filing of a one-page document, which gets the case removed and brought from the state system over to the federal system, and then randomly assigned to Don Middlebrooks. Karen, you got Don Middlebrooks sitting over there. You got Letitia James having filed her recent paper. What do you make of all this? And what do you think What do you think Don Middlebrooks is going to do with his second bite at the apple of, of Donald Trump and his his attempts to involve Florida courts in New York civil fraud cases. Does that count as a, as a related case because it's, it's Trump? I, I don't think so. I don't think it's the party that makes it related. It would be if it relates, I think the way the related party part goes on the uh, civil cover sheet uh, in this matter would be, you'd have to reveal the existence, not of a prior case involving uh, Donald Trump, but in, um, it have to be involved in some way overlapping with the prior case, which this one does not. Yeah, so interesting. So the, I, I think he's it's clear he's going to throw this out and say, you know, you don't have, we don't have jurisdiction over this. Go go to your own federal court in New York or go deal with the judge that you have in New York. I mean, this is so clear that he's just trying to use what he views as more favorable judges in Florida to evade New York law and get better rulings because he doesn't like the ones that he's gotten in New York so far. And, you know, he the, the bottom line is, you know, she, she called him uh, Tish James, the attorney general in her filing, asked the judge to reject um, this lawsuit that he's filing, you know, calling him disgruntled. And, you know, he's he's seeking emergency protection for his trust. But and because he, he accuses her of of invading his privacy, his whole his whole theme is that if if she gets the things that she wants, she'll immediately widely distribute it, and that's an invasion of my privacy. But um, I, I don't know where he even gets that from. You know, the 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 various people who are investigating him and who have all his information and documents have not leaked anything actually. So I, I really don't understand where, where he gets that from. But I, I think the judge is going to throw it out. I mean, it just makes no sense. And it's so obvious what he's doing. However, my, what I'm hoping is that the judge sanctions him, not just throws this out. Because he, at, at a certain point, you have to say enough's enough. You can't use the justice system the way he is using it uh, through his 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 fake lawyers who have no ethics whatsoever to just manipulate people and manipulate the, try to manipulate the system. At a certain point, I think judges are going to have to really, really start sanctioning him. What, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think Don Middlebrooks is going to uh, be hard pressed to find that there was any merit to the filing of this case. This is a whole nother crop of lawyers we haven't heard about before um, that are sitting in Tampa. But that's not the brains of the operation. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting that Boris Epstein, a lawyer who's on the radar for the Department of Justice and a target of, I think, a target of their investigations, He's been he's like the new consigliere for Donald Trump and makes him he kind of practices all the dark arts um, related to him. And he and he caters to um, uh, Trump's darkest instincts. And he's the one against apparently the recommendation and strongly held belief by other lawyers like Eric Corcoran and Jim Trustee and the other ones that are handling matters in New York. Um, not not named Alina Haba, that this was a terrible strategy to try to file a case down in Florida, which they did the night before the major hearing in front of um, in front of uh, the uh, Judge Engeron in the civil fraud case. It was terrible. It looked bad. It, it allowed Letitia James to point fingers at it and talk about. Uh, of course, we need an injunction to and, and a financial monitor in place, Your Honor. Look what they just did. They just they're trying to use their trust in Florida to to deny this court somehow to have jurisdiction over all of his assets. I think it only re reinforced and strengthened Letitia James's hand in that hearing. It was a stupid timed filing. Um, if Boris Epstein is. Um, responsible. It was a terrible strategy. And it was also a terrible strategy to think they were going to avoid federal court by just filing it in state court. Who who among practicing lawyers that, that know anything about procedure wouldn't think that Letitia James would immediately, immediately uh, file a notice of removal to take the case out of the state court system and into the federal court system because the, there is jurisdiction by the federal court because Letitia James is a resident and a citizen of New York and Donald Trump is whatever, something of Florida, and you've got a dispute at, at hand and therefore diversity jurisdiction of the federal court obtains. And, you know, the, the, the little, you know, so they got great press the first day because it got filed in state court. It immediately got sucked over. And then and then as fate would have it, he gets Trump gets the worst pick possible in in Don Middlebrook. So to answer your question, I totally agree with you. I think Judge Middlebrooks not only dismisses the case, he ultimately sanctions the lawyers again and Donald Trump with here you go again, citing back to his own opinion and ruling in the prior case. That's where the related part comes in. Don Middlebrooks doesn't have to forget or have amnesia about what happened in his courtroom in a, in a other in another case involving Donald Trump. And and this can start. Everyone's like, why isn't he found to be a vexatious litigant? Well, you're starting to build a record of being a vexatious litigant who files meritless cases, especially when it's in front of the same judge. Now it's going to be 0 for 2. So I think we're going to see a very strongly worded ultimate ruling. He, Middlebrooks, to sum it up, is not going to exercise jurisdiction over the, the civil fraud case in New York. He is not, because he can't, issue any orders in any way impairing the ability of the New York judge his colleague in New York to, to not hear the case, the jury not to hear the case, or Letitia James, New York Attorney General's office from trying the case or, or prosecuting the civil fraud case. Nothing. There's no power over it whatsoever. And this made up thing that you talked about, Karen, that to give some sort of uh, good faith, although I don't think it's good faith, argument that Florida has some sort of 
uh, jurisdiction over the case because of the existence of the trust in Florida, because, you know, they'll they'll reveal things in the public and embarrass me. Th that's not good enough. A, it's, as you said, it's never happened. That office doesn't leak um, at all. And B, it's not proper grounds for jurisdiction. So we will follow that case closely. Hmm? Can yeah. I ask <laughs> Lady Karen, yes. Can I ask you two questions? Yes, sure. Number one, can you define for everybody what a vexatious litigant is? And number two, going back to the Khashoggi thing that we were discussing, how let's say sovereign immunity wasn't a thing, how would uh, how would the plaintiffs there have jurisdiction since the mm -hmm. since the event happened? Because I know some of the some of the um, defendants were dismissed for who weren't sovereigns for lack of jurisdiction. How did they have jurisdiction over over MBS if there was not a sovereign immunity question? Yeah. If you know, yeah. yeah, I think yeah, I think it has to do with the definition. I think I think if you look at the the Foreign Immunity Act, um, which defines all jury, even though it's it 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 leads in the title with immunity it defines jurisdiction and there are exceptions to it that were made after uh, JASTA, after the 9-11 um, families uh, moved uh, move for an exception for them in which in certain circumstances, even if the act, the bad act, the murderous act happened on, foil, on foreign soil, that's okay if it was targeting an American citizen. So the hook is that Khashoggi was an American citizen who had been tortured and killed on foreign soil. So it doesn't have to happen in America the way the expansive um, immunity statute works as long as, uh, now if it wasn't a, a US citizen, uh, I think, you know, if, if let's say a, a Canadian living in America had this happen to them, I'm not sure they'd be able to use US law to find that jurisdictional hook. On the, vexa on the vexatious litigant thing, um, that's just the doctrine and a set of statutes in most states and in the federal court as well that says that if a, a, a party, uh, a plaintiff, continues to file, and there's really, it, it, it's no, there's no like numeric definition. Like you get the first five filings are fine, but the sixth one uh, is found to be vexatious. If each of your filings um, up to up to an amount that the that the trial court listening to the issue thinks is too many after warning and and they've already been the Trump organization or Trump's already been warned by Middlebrooks once continues to file meritless cases. Now usually it's on a same or similar uh, set of facts or same or same or similar claims. You know it's just like the the pro se jailhouse lawyer who keeps filing over and over again things. It's usually people that aren't represented by counsel who just continue to file at the clerk's office petitions and motions and all of that. And this is a way for the court using its inherent authority to say, you know what? Generally, the courthouse door and the clerk's office is open to everyone in our justice system. But you've so abused your right to do that that we're going to shut the clerk's window to your future filings. But you got to really get to the level of of um, of lawsuits. And, and the reason why I don't think vexatious litigant has been happened or the doctrine has been applied yet by Trump, even though he had you know, 70 cases here. And so it has to be generally in the same courthouse on a similar issue time and time again. You might be able to expand it to be the same litigant in the same courthouse on different issues where each of them have been found to be meritless. 
subject to Rule 11 sanctions under federal under the federal rules for meritless filings. But I, I think that's where that's going to play, play out. I don't think we're yet at vexatious litigant doctrine application against Trump, but we're getting close. And I'm sure Middlebrooks is getting pretty hot under the collar, under his black robe about Donald Trump as plaintiff. Thank you. Makes sense. Um, all I know is uh, Donald Trump and all of his uh, false filings and and uh, misleading filings and and all of that over the last two years has not only turned my hair gray, but you know I'm sure I'm losing a strand or two, <laughs> losing sleep at night, and that's why I'm glad we have one of our, our newest sponsors, Nutrafol on board to help. You don't have to choose between better hair growth and your health anymore because there's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness. And you can get ahead of thinning hair with Nutrafol's whole body approach to hair growth. No drugs, no compromises. I know uh, I know friends that use this particular product over others because of this holistic approach uh, to hair growth. Uh, and not just sort of a topical thing, but a, a holistic whole body approach. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement. Let's repeat that. Number one by dermatologists for hair growth supplements. And it's clinically shown to improve your hair growth thickness and visible scalp coverage. Nutrafol's hair growth nutraceuticals go beyond genetics to multi-target the root causes of thinning, including stress, as we talked about, hormones, nutrition, met metabolism, aging, and lifestyle through whole body health. Physician formulated using natural medical-grade ingredients, Nutrafol's drug-free patented technology provides consistent, reliable results without compromising your sexual health. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 3,000 top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show, Legal AF, by going to Nutrafol.com men and entering the promo code Legal AF. Let me do that again. It's a little bit different. Nutrafol, N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, M-E-N, and then you enter the promo code LEGALAF to save $15 off your first month subscription. This is the best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com slash men, N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, promo code legal A-F. How do you like that, Karen? You know, I think it's great. I, it's <laughs> it's, it's I only for men, but we're going to look for a women's product as well. No, you know, they have a women's product. I think uh, oh. I just I looked on there because I actually am somebody who ha uh, has to deal with um, thinning hair as I'm aging. And so I'm always looking for ways to, to improve that. So I went online and they actually have women's products as well. So I'm, okay. I'm very All interested right. and very curious, by the way, this might be the first time we've had three sponsors. Uh, it may be. It may, Midweek. It may be. Much, much to the delight of all of our listeners and followers. Let's turn to, let's turn to our last segment. 
which is a interesting issue, but one that could have devastating impact on the Department of Justice and its continued prosecution of all those responsible for Jan 6 at the lowest and highest level. It's, it's been no secret that the secret weapon in the arsenal of the Department of Justice has been the threat of and the actual indictment and conviction related to obstruction of an official proceeding as a criminal count. It's been on the books as a crime since 2002. It was passed in the aftermath, that law in the aftermath of the Enron scandal. We have so many scandals today, including FTX and all of that and Bernie Madoff and the collapse of all these companies. But back in the day, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Enron went down and uh, that resulted in a whole bunch of legislation being passed by Congress, one of them being obstruction of official proceeding. It was passed because of a Supreme Court case at the time that found that a then existing obstruction count did not cover the actions of, the, of Enron not properly cooperating with its regulators and other investigators in turning over documents. But that's not what the actual statute says. All it says is that someone or something that corruptly corruptly interferes with an official proceeding is guilty of a crime punishable up to 20 years. Now, the Department of Justice has added that where appropriate to 300 of the 900 or so people that have been indicted uh, and are being prosecuted. 300 of them have in their indictment a count of obstruction. They've used it in the negotiation process to try to get plea deals. I'm sure been very successful with that. They've even put it on a trial successfully and in, in the last four or five trials, including just two weeks ago when Kelly Meggs and Stuart Rhodes of the Oath Keepers were convicted of what else? Obstruction of an official proceeding by the jury. So it's important to the Department of Justice. Why is it on potential life support? Because of a case coming up from Judge Nichols, Carl Nichols, who we talked about in the past, a Trump appointee who was the presiding judge in the Steve Bannon contempt case and sentencing. Judge Nichols stepped kind of offsides, and was the only federal judge so far to have ruled in the District of Columbia that the obstruction charge was improper because by its terms, it doesn't apply to the facts of January 6th. Specifically, Judge Nichols back in March ruled in the in a case involving uh, uh, Grant, uh, Grant Miller, so U.S. versus Miller, that the government would have to dismiss that portion of the indictment on obstruction of an official proceeding, because unless there was evidence, and this is a Nichols view, that that Miller interfered with the actual documents of the ballots of the electoral counting, then he wasn't interfering with an, uh, an official proceeding by just attacking the Capitol to try to stop the count. Seems very esoteric and very wrong in the analysis. And frankly, no other judge in the federal courthouse in, in the District of Columbia, where all these cases are being prosecuted, believes that. And all of them have allowed that count to stand, except for Judge Nichols. So it went up to the Court of Appeals that sits over the uh, courthouses, the federal courthouses in D.C., the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, with a three-judge panel. And based on that three-judge panel, and the results of an oral argument this week, I think it's on life support. Let's first talk about the three-judge panel, and then I'll turn it over to Karen. The three judges are Judge Florence Pan, who is a Biden appointee, 
You can put her already on the side of finding that Nichols made a mistake and made reversible error, and she's in favor, based on her questioning, of having the obstruction count stand and not be removed from all these indictments. On the other extreme, you have a Trump appointee who used to serve in the Trump White House as a deputy general counsel, uh, general uh, deputy White House counsel, Greg Katsis. And we've talked about him before in recent cases. He's on the other extreme. He thinks that obstruction uh, count only applies in in uh, in uh, event of criminal uh, corporate fraud. It has to be corporate fraud for Greg Katzis to apply that count. And then right in the middle, you've got the youngest judge on the panel, 39-year-old Justin Walker, who not only was a Kavanaugh law clerk, but a Kavanaugh apologist, having given 119 interviews, literally 119 interviews, when the uh, nomination of Kavanaugh hung in the balance over sexual assault and abuse charges against him before he was confirmed. Justice uh, Just Judge Walker never tried a case. He's only been a clerk, a, law, uh, a, uh, a Supreme Court clerk twice, worked in the Department of Justice, uh, was never a judge before he became an appellate judge and never tried a case. But this hangs in the balance with him being the swing vote um, about whether the Department of Justice is going to be able to have this in their arsenal or not. And all the prosecutors are very concerned. They were, there was reporting that they were sitting in the gallery watching the oral argument along with FBI agents just to see how this was going to shake out. Talk about what do you think is going to happen and what does it mean from a prosecutor's standpoint for current cases and cases that have already led to conviction on those counts, Karen? Yeah, so I'm going to put this in perspective. Um, obstruction on the state level of uh, when when you have protest cases, which in Manhattan we had all the time, we would have these um, gigantic protests for whatever issue, and you have a constitutional right to protest peacefully. And even if you are um, blocking the book, Brooklyn Bridge or walking in the street without a permit, nobody would arrest people because they were executing their constitutional right peacefully. So even though they're technically uh, breaking the law. And so the only time people would get arrested for doing it is when they take it a step further. So when, for example, uh, there was a whole Occupy Wall Street um, thing going on here where they were where um, lots of people were basically living in a park and in one of our parks and they were they refused to leave. And so for a long time, the police left them there and allowed them to be there because you can exercise your constitutional rights. But at a certain point, they can order you to to leave. And what some protesters will do is they'll do things like chain themselves to a tree or to a fence or together and then not and refuse refuse to move. And at that point is when they can get arrested and charged with a crime because that, at that point they're, they're obstructing, you know, something. And it's in New York, they call it obstruction of governmental administration. Uh, that's an A misdemeanor. So it's a very low level crime. What was happening when there was Black Lives Matter protests in New York, um, there were thousands of people who were getting arrested because they were doing things like looting. They were, you know, breaking into stores and stealing things. And a lot of people got arrested for that. And the prosecutors, you have to make a decision of what is it that you're prosecuting them for? Because it, there's sort of gradations, you know, you're the person who went inside, you know, is that a burglary or is that a trespass? You know, is it a felony or is it a misdemeanor? If you stole something, if you masterminded something, 
I think the problem here is this obstruction case uh, in the federal system, it, they don't have kind of gradations. They don't have, uh, okay, you you protested and went inside. You protested, went inside, and, and um, engaged in violence. You protested, went inside, but you were one of the masterminds. You know, there, there isn't a lot of gradation. They really just have this charge that carries up to 20 years. And that's a pretty significant, uh, hefty, hefty crime. And the Department of Justice used this for over 300 people. And I think that's what that is what is going to get them potentially in trouble, because I think the judges are going to say, you know, these Trump appointee judges in particular are going to say, you know what, you went a little a bridge too far. If you'd saved it for the people who were like the masterminds, like the Stuart Rhodes, who, you know, orchestrated this or Donald Trump, frankly, who is the person who planned it and executed it and cited people and did it. That's clearly, in my opinion, obstructing an official proceeding, but doing it for these other people who may not have had the intent necessarily to stop the electoral vote, but just wanted to go in and wreak havoc or to, you know, be violent or to, you know, do all the things they were doing. It's not, it's, it's a little tricky, I think, to, to, apply this particular statute to so many people. And I think as a result, they stretched the law. And, and, and I have a feeling the court is going to say, you know what, it's, I don't think it applies here. Now, the one thing, the one saving grace, I think, is the statute requires not enough to just obstruct an official proceeding. You have to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. And the corruptly means you have to have a criminal state of mind. So I think, I think that's, that is the only lifeline about this, but you know the 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 legal language of of eighteen United States Code fifteen twelve sub c sub two is whoever corruptly or otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding or attempts to do so. So that's the particular legal language, but I think it's a little thin to apply that to all three hundred people, and as a result. I think that the it's going to be interesting what happens if they decide, if the three-judge panel decides that it does not apply. Now, how can they get a full panel of um, of the D.C. Circuit, Popak? How does that work where you yeah. go from three to the full panel? And will it be appealed to the Supreme Court? I mean, I think we do have a few more stages huh? to go before we can yeah. say what's going to happen to all the people who've been convicted. Huh? But I do I think, think it's going to. Yeah, I think it's going to be two one um, in, in favor of Nichols interpretation and stripping the Department of Justice from their ability to use this count. Before I answer how it gets from three to full on bonk, let me ask you a quick prosecutor question. People have been convicted of this count already, like Stuart Rhodes and others. What happens to them? Do they get a whole new trial? Or does that does that conviction just get vacated for that particular count? No, it gets vacated. You know, it, it, yeah. yeah, it just, it, it becomes um, in, in a legal, I mean, they'll have to move to have these, um, these vacated or dismissed or whatever the procedure is gonna be depending on what stage the case is in. Um, 
you know, it could it could go normally what would happen if something like like this happens is uh, the defense attorney would make a motion and would say my client was unlawfully convicted of something that the courts have says don't apply to to this particular person. The the prosecution can either agree or disagree and the prosecution could potentially say, OK, I agree and, and we'll join in this. Or they could say, you know what? his conduct actually does, you know, this person did alter a document. So it still stands. And then you'd have to have some kind of a hearing, um, some kind of a hearing to determine that. Now, I think it's going to also depend on if someone pled guilty versus if they had a trial. Um, if someone pled guilty, they'll probably be able to get their plea back. Um, mm -hmm. Or if there's another charge, they'll let them plead to the other charge. I mean, it really procedurally will just depend on what state people are in, uh, given their their um, the yeah. stage of, of their case. <clears throat> I think that the Department of Justice will have no choice but to ask for en banc consideration because um, the numbers are in their favor. There's more appointees by Democratic um, presidents to the D.C. Circuit than there are Republican. That's the one area that Trump wasn't able to overly impact, even though he got the Supreme Court and a lot of other appellate places. The D.C. Circuit was not one of them, and I think they'd have a better they'd have a better shot at it. They make a request, and the there's a vote and there's a vote before the vote to decide whether there's going to be on banc and if there's going to be on banc, which is the full, all of the judges of the D.C. Circuit hear it again, including the ones that just heard it. And then if there's a majority decision from it, it doesn't have to be unanimous. If there's a majority decision from it, um, they can overturn the uh, the three judge panel. Um, and then, of course, you're off to the U.S. Supreme Court. and Lord knows what they're going to do. Um, the swing vote is really is really uh, is really Wilson. Um, uh, Walker, I'm sorry, who was a Kavanaugh, uh, a Kavanaugh guy, a Kavanaugh clerk. And um, that's why I think, you know, Walker took such offense during the oral argument at Nick Smith, the advocate for the Jan 6 defendants, because Nick Smith said, well, where are you going to draw the line? What about all the people that went down to Florida in 2000 and all the lawyers that descended on on Florida during Bush versus Gore to try to find votes and protest the vote counting. And, you know, why wouldn't they be obstructionist under the under the statute? And and that, that was even too far for um, for Walker. And, and Walker knew that Kavanaugh had been one of the lawyers that had descended on Florida in 2000 on behalf of the Republican Party. By the way, I was down there for that at that very moment. And I had a role in um, on the on the Gore side and making sure that vote counting was done properly in all of those places. That was the moment of the hanging Chad and the butterfly ballot and Pat Buchanan getting, who was a virulent anti-Semite, getting lots of votes in the Jewish communities of Boca, which made absolutely no sense and ultimately led to a five to four decision that elected George Bush president by the U.S. Supreme Court. But even, even Walker was like, don't, don't use that as your comparison, you know, what happened on on Jan 6th, even in the view of a Trump appointed appellate judge, was heinous, unprecedented, violent and um, and uh, and all of that and shouldn't be compared to lawful protests, First Amendment expression about, you know, my guy won over your guy and let's make sure the vote counting is done properly. So that that that's called not reading the room right as an advocate by leading off with that and not knowing that the person in the black robe, his his mentor, Kavanaugh, was one of the lawyers that descended, quote unquote, in, down in Florida, what was then called the Brooks Brother Riot. All these Republicans running around in khakis and 
light blue button down shirts like they just walked out of Brooks Brothers, you know, protesting in the streets for the first time in their lives uh, about the vote counting. So we have that. We're going to have to watch it closely. It has tremendous ramifications and impact on the prosecutors in this case, of course, the defense attorneys, future prosecutions, as Karen laid out, past prosecutions and convictions. It'll really, um, you know, it's a Pandora's box. We're hoping that the appellate court doesn't open. But if they do, as Karen outlined, full panel, the 11th Circle would probably hear it, whatever happens there, U.S. Supreme Court. And now the Department of Justice has to, you know, continue to assess whether they want to have that as a charge in their indictment and double down on it, or they want to, like you said, remove it and only use it in certain circumstances. But I don't think the certain circumstances are whether somebody touched a ballot or not. First of all, there's no evidence that anybody got into the chambers to actually touch a, a electoral ballot that was being counted at the time it was being counted. You know, the session, the 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 uh, session of Congress was halted. That's the that's part of the obstruction, and and the goal of the object of the obstruction was to stop the counting. And as they as they got all of the lawmakers to safety, um, so I don't. If that's your standard for the application of that, you have to touch the piece of paper or the document or interfere with it in some way, then I think that's a very narrow, I'm not saying that is your interpretation, but that would be a very narrow reading of that particular obstruction statute. And, you know, I know that that the judges like Katz is on the bench said, well, if you look at the legislative history, it's really only for corporate fraud. And it talks about corporate fraud. And, and he even said half jokingly, Jan 6 is a lot of things, but it's not corporate fraud. And so he's out. That, that's going to be a, a no vote to reverse Judge Nichols. I think Judge Pan, as I said, Florence Pan, the first Asian-American to ever be on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, who took Katanji Brown-Jackson's seat, she's going to be a vote for reversing Judge Nichols and keeping obstruction on the books for the use in this circumstance. And it's going to come down, uh, unbelievably so, to Judge Walker. So, And that ruling is going to come out soon. I don't think they're going to sit on that a long time, given that there are trials that are going that are still going to trial in the next few months that have this count embedded within them and all the other people that are waiting around to see. And the prosecutors, you know, did it surprise you that the reporting is that there were line prosecutors sitting in the room watching this oral argument? No, no, not at all. Of course they were. Yeah. I mean, this is yeah. going to be this is very significant for, to them. I mean, this is yeah. this is one of the tools they've been using in their toolbox on how to deal with this. So they're, they're very interested in what, what happens here. Agreed. Well, unfortunately, we've reached the end of another midweek edition of Legal AF with my illustrious royalty co-anchor, Karen Friedman Agnifilo. We're bringing you a specially cultivated show of those most important consequences at the midweek at the intersection of law and politics today. Special shout out to a, a, a guest of ours, Anthony Davis, fellow podcaster and broadcaster and journalist and host of the Five Minute News and the weekend show also on the Midas Media Network. Shout out to all of our sponsors, uh, Miracle Brand, Nutrafol and Highlands Titles. Um, and having them on the show was was great fun for you and I to do those ad reads. And Karen, I got a weekend show with Ben, uh, Ben Mysalis on Saturday, but then right back at it with you during the week leading into, into the holidays next can't Wednesday. Wait. Yeah, can't, I wait. can't wait. See you either. next week. We'll see everybody next Wednesday. Thanks. Thanks.